Well, thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you very much, guys, for doing that. Tom, uh, thank you. Your work is done. Mine is beginning. <laughs> Last week, I was standing here with Pastor Kent, and he asked, he said, are you going to miss me? And I said, yeah, I'm going to miss you, especially when I'm standing up here. <laughs> this is not easy to do. Um, and uh, there won't be um, a song at the beginning, and I'm certainly not going to try that Hebrew blessing at the end. I would botch that up. Um, uh, but I will start with a story. I know Kent always likes to start with a story. And let's see if this thing works. There's our title. And uh, the deal that almost never happened. A large corporation approached a startup company. And they had a project they wanted them to work on. They were working on some other things together. Problem was this wasn't, wasn't, wasn't quite in their wheelhouse. So, the startup corporation said, or company said, um, you know, we can't do that, but there's somebody else that can do this better than us. So we're going to recommend them to you. And he gave them the number of the president of the company, and uh, so they, he contacted them, and they tried to work out the deal, but they, the large corporation just couldn't work out the deal with this other company. So they came back to the original startup, and they said, hey, these other guys can't do it. You guys sure you can't do this for us? And they said, well, okay, we'll, we'll do it. And uh, that decision that they made to do this changed the world, certainly changed this company, transformed this company. I'm going to tell you the details of it, but first, I want to see if anybody can guess who that little company was. Anybody know? Hmm? Apple? Not Apple. Microsoft. Okay. The guy in the lower left, that's Bill Gates. His uh, partner over there on the right, that's Paul Allen. Those were the two guys that started Microsoft. This, this picture was taken in 1978, thereabouts. And as I was looking, this was the entire company, by the way. As I was looking at it, I, I kind of chuckled as I looked at, look at the guy in the middle row on the right. Um, Pens nicely lined up in his pocket. He's got like four or five pens there. And I was thinking, this is great. Uh, you know, like I call this the uh, original nerd or geek squad. Um, could you imagine them the day before? Hey, we're going to get our picture taken. This is a real important picture. You guys make sure you dress. Make sure you, you know, your shirts are ironed. And uh, make sure those pens are lined up in the pocket. Right. You know, why he didn't take them out, I have no idea. But we're only missing one thing, and that's a pocket protector. You guys remember the pocket protectors? Yeah. Great picture. Um, so the details of that story, um, IBM was the major corporation that approached them. And uh, this was about two years later. It was in 1980. IBM came out with the IBM PC, which is what drove the explosion of, of the PC um, you know, in the marketplace. And um, they were working with Microsoft on some software. Microsoft developed software for microcomputers. and. Um, so they were working on things like Bill Gates loved BASIC, that was the language, and, and doing a, uh, an interpreter for BASIC for them, and he wanted to do a few other things. So as they were talking, the guys from my, uh, IBM said, hey, you know, this is all great, we, we want all this stuff, but you know what we really need? We really need an operating system, something to run this, uh, this PC that we're building. And uh, that's when Gates said, you know, we don't really do that, but there's an, another company called Digital Research. And, and they have a really good product. They're really well known. And, and you might want to go to them and, and uh, you know, get them to do it for you. Um, that product, uh, product you may have heard of, anybody know computer history, is called CPM. 
it was a rival uh, operating system. And uh, they went to, to uh, digital research, tried to work out a deal. They couldn't. I guess digital research wanted too much in royalties or whatever, for whatever reason. Went back to uh, Microsoft, and uh, they said, hey, this, you know, they can't do that. Could you guys do that? And Bill Gates said, we better not turn these guys down twice. We'll find, out, we'll find a way to do it. And uh, what they did is they actually found some guy that wrote uh, an operating system, was working on one. And they bought it from, from him for about $10,000. Could you imagine that? A $10,000 investment. And they modified it, and that became MS-DOS, Microsoft Disk Operating System. And that was the vehicle that really launched Microsoft, uh, you know, exploded on the marketplace. Um, a decision that I'm sure they never regret making. Um, so <clears throat> the interesting thing is, um, there was an interview that they were doing with Bill Gates. Somebody was doing with Bill Gates about 30 years later. And uh, this is what Bill Gates said. He said, when Paul Allen and I started Microsoft over 30 years ago, we had big dreams about software. We had dreams about the impact it could have. We talked about a computer on every desk and in every home. It's been amazing to see so much of that dream become a reality and touch so many lives. I never imagined what an incredible, important company would spring from those original ideas. So they had an ultimate goal, an end game of putting a computer in every office and on every, you know, in, in every office and on every, in every home. Um, there were different ways to get there. Was it going to be, um, you know, his basic interpreter, the other software, MS-DOS? But that didn't matter because they had that one end game in mind. Uh, they knew this was going to be big, and they wanted to be part of it. And they, more than being part of it, they wanted to drive what was happening in the computer industry. There's a quote from this author here. And uh, he says, when setting goals, a common mistake is to confuse end goals with mean goals. End goals define outcomes where you're willing, unwilling to compromise. They describe exactly what you want. Means, mean goals, on the other hand, define one of many path, paths to reach your end goals. And so in Microsoft's case, they had the end goal of putting a computer in every office on every desk, and it didn't really matter all the, how, they, how they got there. They just wanted to do it. A good example of this would be, let's say uh, your favorite music group is coming into town and you really want to see them, okay? There was, there's nothing that would satisfy you other than going to that concert, being at the concert, listening to them, seeing them in person. And uh, so that's your end goal. That's your end game. Let's say a radio station is running a contest, local radio station, and the winner of the contest would get two tickets to this concert. So you enter the contest. But winning those tickets from this contest is really just a means goal. You may not win the tickets with that contest. That doesn't mean you give up on your end goal, right? There's other ways of getting there. You can go out and actually buy the tickets. Uh, if you don't have the money, get a you know, side job for a while, whatever. I mean, there's other ways of getting there. So does God have an end game? Can it be put as simply as Gates and um, Alan had to uh, put a computer in every office and in every home. And I believe it does. I, I believe God does. To have a free and safe universe in which love reigns supreme. 
And we can state that in any number of ways, right? It doesn't have to be stated this way. It could be that the Holy Spirit is indwelling in, in every intelligent creature. That would have the same result. I believe this is God, God's end game. And I also think he had means goals along the way. And we're going to explore some of those things. So what does it mean to be, have a, a universe in which love reigns supreme? What kind of beings would have to be there? Well, to be free, truly free, those intelligent beings would have to be able to decide to do anything they wanted to do, right? There's, there's really no external restrictions on that. They have to be totally free to make decisions, to, to develop themselves, to learn, to learn more about God. Um, but to have a safe universe, all the decisions that were made, that would be made, would have to be the right decisions, right? And in which love reigns supreme, they would have to internalize this. So that's what God is working with, working with very defective human beings with this in mind. There's a quote from Ellen White here, great controversy, I think, which encapsulates that. Their mortal minds will contemplate with, I don't think you can see it, so I'll read it. <laughs> I just looked up, and I'm thinking that's pretty hard to read. Their immortal minds will contemplate with never-failing delight the wonders of creative power, the mysteries of redeeming love. Every faculty will be developed, every capacity increased. The acquirement of knowledge will not weary the mind or exhaust the energies. There the grandest, grandest enterprises may be carried forward, the loftiest aspirations reached, the highest ambitions realized, and still, there arise new heights to surmount, new wonders to admire, new truths to comprehend, fresh objects to call forth the powers of mind, soul, and body. That's God's end game. But to get there, there's a lot of twists and turns. And, uh, you know, when we say that God has uh, mean, means goals, short-term goals that sometimes aren't met, that sounds a little weird. It sounds weird to me. I mean, God is sovereign, right? And we think of that, everything that happens, well, that's, you know, God is sovereign. He controls everything. But when you think about it, um, in order to have a, a universe where everybody is free, free to decide, he has to let us decide things. In order to have it safe, those intelligent beings have to look at the decisions that were made and say, wow, that, was, that didn't turn out right. Uh, you know, this, these decisions that we made are, are bad decisions. We can see the results of these things. In no way should we be putting God, though, in the same camp as Bill Gates. It's not that God was trying different things out. Well, let me see if this works. Oh, this didn't work. Let me try something else. No, that's, that's not it at all. Uh, God knows the end from the beginning. He knew all this was going to happen. He's outside of time, right? There's, time is not a restriction to him. He, he knows, but we don't including angels. Angels don't know the future. If they did, they wouldn't have made the bad choices that they've made. Um, they live in the same kind of uh, time that's restricted by time like we do. I mean, they may be smarter than us and they can you know, anticipate things better, but they don't know the future. Only God knows what's actually going to happen. So he had to allow this thing to carry out. We can look at some evidence of things that are obvious to us that these are not part of God's ultimate plan. We can just start with the fall, the fall of Lucifer, the fall of human beings, not part of God's original plan. How about turning Adam and Eve away from the garden? He built this 
made this beautiful garden, garden, created it for them, and then had to turn them away. Not part of his original plan. How about the first murder and all subsequent murders and everything else that happened? Not part of God's original plan. Um, the flood. The flood, not part of God's original plan. Giving Israel a king. Uh, if none of these are convincing, which I think they are, how about the words from Jesus' own mouth? You remember when he was questioned about marriage and divorce? And uh, he said, well, you know, when two people are joined together, let, nothing, let no one put them asunder. And uh, the Pharisees asked him, he said, yeah, how come Moses allowed divorce? And he said, what was his response? Because of the hardness of your hearts. Moses didn't make that up. I mean, Moses got that from God. God allowed it. It uh, wasn't part of his original plan, but because of the hardness of your hearts, he allowed it. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. So at, as we talked about, none of these um, twists and turns were because God was deficient in any way. It was because he was de dealing with deficient beings. Once the fall happened, there was a downward spiral that started to take place that uh, God had to arrest. He had to stop it. And two of the fallouts, fallout from the fall, was mistrust of God and just outright rebellion. Look at the first one, uh, mistrust of God. It started in heaven and extended then down onto earth. Um, do you realize that the first recording of human fear is fear of God? Isn't that interesting? First time it's recorded in, in history um, is that these human beings that God created, they were afraid of him. The Lord approached Adam and Eve in the garden as he did every day. Every day they would run to him. This day they ran away and they hid themselves. Why, why did you hide yourself? Well, we were naked and we were afraid. Well, who told you you were naked? The lions? No, it came from within. So sin started playing havoc with their brains, with their minds. Um, once they broke the bonds of love and trust, they started seeing things through a distorted lens now. I feel horrible about myself after I sin. I get, uh, God's coming, I need to run from God. We project onto God things that we're feeling inside about ourselves. That's one of the results of sin. More on that later. The second is rebellion. So we don't only mistrust God, we really don't like him. All this talk of, of unselfishness and giving and, and, and so forth, that doesn't really sit well with, uh, with us because now selfishness is baked into our DNA. That's what happened with the fall. And we're really out to protect ourselves. Everybody else is secondary. And we saw that with Adam, with his response. Well, it's the woman that he gave me. It's somebody else that's got to deflect it. We've got to deflect it away. Um, you know, the opposite of love isn't necessarily hate. It's selfishness. It's I'm thinking of myself first. Whereas God is other-centered. He is always thinking of others. That's the definition of love. And as we are told, the kindness of God leads to repentance. But how do you tell a, a rebellious people that kindness is not weakness. You really can't. Okay, so how does God deal with rebellion? It's called the law. The law. Now by the law, I don't mean the law of love that the whole universe is designed to operate on. 
Okay, that's a different kind of law. That's a law that's built into the character of God. It emanates from him. And um, the, the kind, that's what we'll be governed with internally for eternity. I'm talking about the law as something external, something outside of ourselves that causes us to change our behavior. Um, it's kind of a broad definition of law. But uh, the first thing that God had to do was get us to stop, as we talked about in the Sabbath school class. Stop murdering. Stop worshiping other gods. Stop lying. Stop committing adultery. You got to stop, because if you don't stop, there's no way I'm going to ever reach you. We're told that every sin cherished weakens the character and strengthens the habit, and physical, mental, and moral depravity result. There's an effect of when we're sinning, when we're doing these things, uh, sometimes unknown to us. It impacts us internally. And uh, the more we do, the harder it is to respond to God. So the first thing God needs to do is stop it. you got to stop. And sometimes God turns to plan B, plan C, plan D. Listen to this quote. This is from uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, and we've heard this before. If man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah and observed by Abraham, there would have been no necessity for the ordinance of circumcision. So circumcision was not a plan A. And if the descendants of Abraham had kept the covenant of which circumcision was a sign, they would never have been seduced into idolatry, nor would it have been necessary for them to suffer a life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved upon the tables of stone. That wasn't plan A. That was probably plan C right here. And had the people practiced the principles of the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need for the additional directions given to Moses, plan D. Each one of them was in response to our lack of response. And this explains the heavy use of law in the Old Testament. You know, the people back then may not have realized it, but Paul many centuries later, looking back under inspiration, was, was contemplating this whole concept of law. Why the law? Why was the law? Why was there so much emphasis on law? Paul, the, the apostle that talked about grace. Paul came to a conclusion, and this conclusion was that there was two purposes for the law. One was to point out sin, and that's recorded in Romans 3.20, where it says, for by the law, is the knowledge of sin. So before we can even, God could tell us what we shouldn't be doing, he's got to tell us what it is that we shouldn't be doing. Um, also, Romans 7, 7, it says, I would, have, would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So it points out what's wrong, what's right, what's wrong. Second reason for the law, seven, second overarching excuse me, purpose for the law is protection. And this is recorded in Galatians 3.23. And we've been studying this uh, here. I know Kent has been, Pastor Kent has been presenting some of these things. It says, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would by uh, afterward be revealed. Without this protection, we would have destroyed ourselves. As we already learned that by sinning, we're actually destroying ourselves internally and it's more and more preventing us from hearing the voice of God. So 
the law served two purposes. One, it pointed out what was right, what was wrong. Second, it was protection. But again, it was something external, outside of us, that caused us to change. Um, love is actually based on internal, something internal. That's why Paul continues in Galatians, and there's many misunderstandings of this, of this passage, but understood rightly, it makes perfect sense. He says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And that's where people really misunderstand that. No longer under a guardian. This does not mean that the law has been, you know, the, the effects of the law have been done away with. And, and many people interpret it that way. What it means, and if you follow Paul's Paul's analogy here, what was a guardian? A guardian was to protect a little boy or girl as they were growing up, make sure that they went to school, went to classes, whatever they did, they didn't get in the fights, uh, make sure they did their work, their reading, and that's what the guardian was. It was more than just a, a, a babysitter. It was somebody who actually guided this little person up. When that person, little person, became an adult, it would be very inappropriate to have that guardian there, wouldn't it? there would be some kind of stunt of growth. If you still needed somebody to say, oh, no, don't get in a fight. Oh, no, don't do that. I mean, the idea is that this guardian, while you're growing up, is teaching you these things, and you start internalizing it. And that's what the law was. That's what Paul is telling us. The, the law external is, is, is there as a protection temporarily until we internalize it, and then we're living out the law from the inside out. And this also was recorded in the scripture, Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. See how it all fits together. Now, back to the other fallout, mistrust of God. As I mentioned, we mistrust God. It plays havoc. Our perception of God, our perception of reality is distorted. The only uh, way to be healed of, of this is for us to come to God, but we're afraid of God, so we can't come to him. Reading uh, from Isaiah 59, 1-3, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. We read this verse, and what do we think? What comes to mind? Our sins have separated us from God because we have offended a holy God, right? I mean, that's what comes to my mind. We have offended a holy God, and he's turning his back on us because we're so awful, because that's how we feel about ourselves. But is that what's really happening? All we have to do is listen to Jesus and his description of what's actually taking place, the story of the prodigal, prodigal son. So when the son took off, did the son have any care for the father? No. Was the son, while he was partying and living it up, did he even think of his father? I doubt it. Not very much. Certainly didn't think enough about him to come back. Um, but during this time, what was the father doing? Every day, father was going out looking for him. Where, where's my son? Is he coming back? He's praying, hoping, waiting, waiting for him to come. That's why it says when he was a long way off, the father ran and, and met him. 
the, the father was there every day looking for him. So even though the father wasn't on the son's mind at all, the son and his well-being were certainly on the father's mind, weren't they? And, and Jesus is telling you, this is how God is. Even when you're sinning, even when you're not, you don't care anything about God, he's still working on you. He hasn't turned his back on you. It's your sins that mess with your mind, and now you can't hear him. You can't see him. You don't want to, to even respond to him. I love the way the, the white estate interprets this. They said, but terrible changes took place when Adam and Eve sinned. They no longer could speak with God face to face, not because God had changed, but the first couple had. Sin reconfigured their mind and emotions. I love that. Sin reconfigured their mind and emotions. Isaiah starkly described this new situation, and they go on to quote the passage in Isaiah that we had read together. In other words, sin changed us. It didn't change God. God's love has not been diminished one bit. I am the Lord, he says. I change not, Malachi. But God had a problem. How could he break through now this mistrust, this distortion, this confusion that took place in our minds? We said the, the law dealt with rebellion. The cross deals with this mistrust. Someone had to remove our guilt. God had to tell us, you're not going to be punished for this. I will take this on myself. He did, that, he did that for us, not for himself. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. God is other-centered, not self-centered. Everything related to salvation, he's done for us in the unfallen universe. There's an interesting article I came across it's called, What Was Secured by the Death of Christ, written by Ellen White's in uh, Signs of the Times, 1889, quite a long time ago. And as I was reading and rereading and rereading this article, I noticed something. What was secured by the death of Christ? And uh, there were things mentioned, but one of the things that stood out is what was never mentioned. She never said that our acceptance by God was secured by the cross, or that his, he was appeased in some way. Nothing pointed to him being changed by the cross, but everything in this article talked about us being changed. And it, it, it's really in line with God's ultimate goal, his end game of a, a free and safe universe where love reigns supreme. Now, I didn't, I'm not going to show you the whole article, but I did pick out eight bullet points out of this. And uh, if you can't see this, I will, um, I will read it. So we're going to go over these really quickly. And then ask yourselves, let's ask ourselves this question. What is this dealing with? What has been secured? So the first one is the death of Christ testifies to every son and daughter of Adam the immutab immutability of God's law. So who is this testifying to? Every son and daughter of Adam. It's human beings. Human beings needed to see the immutability of God's law. The law of love cannot change. What happens when we work, operate outside the law of love? What happens when we, we, we sin? There's a, a change that takes place. There's a, there's a, a punishment that's built into that. It, it, it's, you're outside of the way that God designed things to operate. We have to see that. The cross did that. His ha second point, his having provided the means of salvation for the lawbreaker 
does not in the least detract from the dignity of the character of God since the penalty of man's transgression was borne by a divine substitute. So in whose mind was uh, the dignity of the character of God in question? Did God question his own character? No, in the, in the mind of man, this had to be shown that um, I can't just tell you you're forgiven. I may, I may personally forgive you for what happened here, but I can't just tell you that because you are not going to understand that there's a severe consequence for operating outside of this law. I have to demonstrate that to you. Point number three, though the atonement of the Son of God could alone, alone could power be given to man to establish him in righteousness and make him a fit subject for heaven. So this is talking about the impact on human beings to fit them for heaven. What's the ultimate goal? Safe and uh, secure, free environment um, where love reigns supreme. Man has to be made fit for that. <clears throat> Point four, all the worlds behold in him a living testimony to the malignity of sin, for in his divine form he bears the marks of the curse. Now it brings in the other worlds, not only for man's sake, but for um, beings that are not human beings. Okay, a few more here. The significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. Angels and saints. The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ, for even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than they were, than were the angels before the fall of Satan. So the angels themselves had a lesson to learn, and it, it's a protection, a safe and secure and a free universe. If the unspeakable gift of God does not lead man to repentance, there is nothing that will ever move his heart. Again, who is being impacted? Man, human beings. And finally, the image of Christ will be perfected in every soul who accepts the gift of his grace. Where is this image being changed? Who's being changed here? Again, human beings. Everything is related to, to us and the worlds. God is, is demonstrating, is showing, is changing, uh, changing us. So is God like us? You know, in so many instances in the Bible, there's uh, indications, there's, there's explanations of his anger. God is angry. There's many, I, I picked out a few, but there's many, many more. Uh, let me read a few of these. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. Deuteronomy 9.8. Now, then let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. Exodus 32. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazel, king of Aram, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel, second kings. In indignation you marched through the earth, and in anger you trampled the nations, Habakkuk 3.12. So as I read these and the many more here, I, I start to think about this. What is God saying? What's he, what's he, why does he say things like this? And I came to the conclusion is, I had to ask myself, not whether God has emotions or not, okay? We have emotions, he has emotions. Do we really believe that God is making decisions based on his emotions? That's a, that's a kind of heavy question. God, does God make decisions based on his emotions? Or does he always do it other-centered? 
Um, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that um, you do when you come across difficult passages like this is you have to keep God's end game in mind. What's he actually trying to do? And remember the law was given to stop us, stop us from sinning, to get us to listen. What better way to get us to listen, if he has to resort to it, than fear of an angry God? If that's what it takes to get us to stop what we're doing, won't he do that? Isn't that operating out of love? <clears throat> we saw this at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, there was thunderings and lightnings, and what was the reaction of the people? They were afraid. They didn't, you know, God said, don't touch this mountain. You come near, you're going to get stoned. Uh, and they were afraid. And, and they said to Moses, we, don't let God talk to us. You talk to him and tell us what he says, because we, we can't talk to him. Uh, but they also said that, um, tell the Lord we're going to do whatever he wants us to do. We'll do whatever you tell us. Fear has that impact on you, doesn't it? But there's also another example there. When God went up on the mountain with Moses and they didn't hear about God or hear of God for a while, for several days, a week, whatever it was, some, sometime within 40 days, what did they do? They went right back to what they were doing. Right? They had that, that party uh, worshiping the calf at the foot of the mountain. They forgot all about the fear, all about, oh, we'll do whatever you want us to do. That shows you that fear is not is not long-lasting. There's no way that God is going to run his universe based on fear. He is not going to be the, the standing up there in heaven always threatening us. That's not the kind of universe that he wants. And that demonstrated it. You know, uh, sometimes I believe God presents himself in ways that we, can, that we identify with, that we, we respond this way. We respond this way, and then God explains himself that way to us. This time of the year, I love this time of the year, uh, Memorial Day weekend, it was the beginning of the barbecue season in uh, the neighborhood I grew up in, in uh, southwest Chicago and many other places. Time to cook out. And uh, from Memorial Day to Labor Day, you'd go out in the neighborhood um, different times, especially those holidays, and you'd smell that barbecue. And I love that smell today. To this day, I love it. I may not eat everything that they're barbecuing, but I love the smell of it. And, and there's a lot of memories that uh, come with that. Um, but did you know that God loves the smell of barbecue too? Did you know that? Yeah, he likes the smell of barbecue. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar, and the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. You get that picture in your mind of God just kind of whiffing. <sighs> I love that smell. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the earth. Curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of his heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. All because he smelt that barbecue. You know, I mean, God sometimes speaks to us as we, as we understand. And we got to remember that God is dealing with people from all walks of life. All ages, all kind of levels of maturities, all different cultures. The, the Bible has to speak to everybody. Did you ever notice that when a parent is disciplining a strong-willed child who's guilty of something, sometimes a strong-willed child isn't impacted, but if there's a compliant child nearby and they hear the parent raising their voice and scolding them, who's more afraid? The one who actually did something wrong or the compliant child? It's a compliant child. Um, but the parent has to raise their voice for the sake of the, of the rebellious child. And that's what God does. I mean, we have to understand that he's talking to all 
different kinds of people. Is God like us? It says, but for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God tells us. Okay, I may talk with you like this, but I'm not like you. I'm a lot higher. It's from Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. I think the lesson that God wants us to learn, and as we read the, the scriptures, we can ask ourselves, were these means goals, were these emergency measures that God had to do in order to save us from the ultimate? It's sin that destroys. God is the life giver. It's sin that destroys us. We're told that affliction shall not rise up the second time, Nahum 1.9. The law of God, which Satan has reproached as the yoke of bondage, will be honored as the law of liberty. A tested and proved creation will never again be turned from allegiance to him whose character has been fully manifested before them as fathomless love and infinite wisdom. And I love that phrase, a tested and proved creation. Remember, in order to get to that ultimate goal, to have perfect freedom and perfect safety, you have to have intelligent beings that understand a tested and proved creation. I love that. Finally, we'll end up with this one. This is from The Great Controversy. It says, the great controversy has ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean, one pulse of harmony, and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness. Throughout the realms of limitable space, from the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things animate and inanimate in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy declare that God is love. And God will have accomplished his ultimate goal. He will have a safe, free universe in which love reigns supreme. Amen.